0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Today we are starting a new series about a topic that I have never directly preached on in my entire ministry career. Now, I know what you're saying, you're very young and you haven't been at it very long. But the truth is, the truth is no one was saying that, thank you Dan. Yeah, I'll be 46 in a few days, and I've been at it quite a long time at this point. I've never preached on this topic. Um, this is a three-week series that's going to, uh, I hope, make the case for LGBTQ plus affirmation from a Christian perspective. Um, and I've already seen some interest on the social medias since we put this up on there just yesterday, which is great. It tells me that there is some interest in this topic, and I sincerely hope that what we do over the next few weeks will be meaningful to a lot of you, and... Um, I know that there's people tuning in from, from afar as well. Uh, so the title of this series is sort of an inside joke. It's called All Are Welcome. Right? The, the three most loaded words in all of Christendom. Right? <laughs> so much so that I don't even put it on our sign. Our church sign says everyone welcome. Um, <laughs> um, because how often is the phrase all are welcome actually sort of a bait and switch? All are welcome until, unless, except. But I hope that we do our best at meaning it when we say it, that all are welcome. And I think it's worth spending a little bit of time articulating the case for why that is because you know it'd probably be helpful to, to say honestly that the position that Artisan Church holds on LGBTQ plus inclusion is a non-traditional position when you think about the, the history of the church. Right. So, I do need to to do some table setting here, right, at the beginning of this sermon. Um, So here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'll probably say it a hundred times even this morning. I have to go so fast through this content, it's really not fair to go as quickly as I'm going to go, but that's kind of what we decided to do. Um, So the first thing I'm going to do is give you a very quick content advisory, then I'm going to give you a few general words about the series. And then a quick explanation about how the series is structured, because that's actually very important to what we're saying in the series. And then, at last, I'll get into today's specific topic. Again, I'm going to try to move quickly here. Um, The content advisory is this. This sermon, probably most of the sermons in this series, is going to be sort of PG-13. It's just kind of difficult to talk about this topic without being somewhat specific sometimes about sexuality and sex. So... Of course, it will never be graphic or gratuitous, um, but occasionally it will be, uh, maybe the word would be specific, right? So uh, if you need to plan something different for the folks who are usually sitting next to you, as I said at the beginning of the service, you can totally do that. I understand if you need to move around and leave the room and all that kind of stuff, you can do that. Um, The second content advisory is kind of a backwards one. It's like, you might not need this series at all. Right? And if you are a parent of a child who's grown up in this church, they probably don't need it at all, in the sense that they have not been exposed to some of the uh, you know, ch- church-specific marginalization and bigotry that, that um, often exists. So that's not to say that Artisan is perfect and there's never been a, a breath of that in this room, because that's not true. Um, but as we were planning this series in our staff meeting, um, Pastor Jesse, our associate pastor who works most closely with youth, Uh, and kids said, you know, it might be worth letting folks know that they might not need all of this stuff. (laughs) It's mostly for older people who've been kind of carrying the weight of what the church has said about this for their whole lives. So that may be the case, and if so, um, God bless. And that might actually be a reason to sort of opt out of listening to it, because even just the kind of what I hope will be a a correction of some of that church-related bigotry is going to sort of mention it. Does that make sense? That in itself can be maybe challenging. And then lastly, uh, I know it's uh, important to talk and use terminology that is inclusive. I I generally use the term LGBTQ plus to describe the community of people who are at the center of this conversation and here might be a good time to acknowledge that I am not a member of that community. And so you are encouraged, especially if you are, to give me feedback, maybe not live in the sermon, um, <laughs> unless it's really egregious, in which case please do, um, but you know, if, if the way I'm talking about it is not helpful to you. Um, there are other terminology that people prefer, I acknowledge that, That I don't mean to exclude anyone by the way I do it, it's just the language I've kind of settled into. Also the word uh, queer, which you see on the screen, it's actually in the title, is a term that um, m- my perception is that LGBTQ plus people at Artisan have used that term of themselves, sort of adopted it for themselves. I sometimes use the word too, um, recognizing that some people really, really dislike that word. So I'll I'll mostly steer clear of it, but please know if I say that word uh, and it's one that you find hurtful, then um, that's not my intent at all, I hope. Um, My intent is to center the folks who are here with us and to, you know, who are most closely affected by the way that language can sometimes marginalize people, and I'm always open to correction on that. Okay. Um, The next question you might have is, why now? Why this? Why now? Uh, Artisan's been around for 18 years. We've been uh, openly LGBTQ plus inclusive and affirming for several years now. Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, When we were part of our former denomination, uh, it was part of my ordination pledge was that I would not teach something that disagreed with the denomination's position. And while we were in the process of trying to stay in harmony with that group, um, I decided not to preach on it, uh, on Sundays at least, to talk about it in those ways, in hopes that we could stay with them, that we might be a force for change and all of those things. That effort fell flat, and now I regret not talking about this much, much sooner and being much more clear about it earlier on in my ministry and in our history as a church, so I'm sorry for that. I uh, hope that you will trust that my intent and our intent was, um, was for good. Um, but now you're gonna hear it from me directly. I'm not gonna require you to come have coffee with me in order for me to share my pastoral views on this. How many of our LGBTQ plus people have been invited to coffee by a pastor? <laughs> yeah, right. Actually <laughs> uh, Penny, I believe you invited me for coffee, but well. <laughs> You just. Um, (laughs) um, Penny just wanted to let me know that she didn't totally approve of my lifestyle. I I just don't understand the sense. Uh, All right. I feel the wheels coming off already. This is. Here's another thing I do want to say. I, I'm really, I promise you I'm not trying to convince or coerce anybody to believe something or to think something that they don't already think or believe. Um, I mainly want to offer a, a sturdy foundation in Christian and biblical worldview and ethics and, and all that kind of stuff for people who kind of already know this in their heart, right? Um, by the way, don't sell the I know it in my heart thing short. Because I know that you've been told to sell it short. I know that you've been told that's not enough. That just the fact that your heart tells you that people should be included is not enough. You have to show it from the Bible. And I love the Bible, but to that I say, um, baloney. I told you it was going to be (laughs) PG-13. A mother loves her baby, not because there's a verse that tells her to do it, but because when they place that baby on her chest, something explodes inside her, and she has no choice, right? Um, So your heart matters. And what your heart has told you matters. Okay. The last thing before I actually give the sermon is to tell you about the structure of the series. Like I said, more than usual, this really matters um, because the thing is not any of these sermons is intended to stand on its own. Let me rephrase that. None of these three sermons is supposed to be its own thing. It's all supposed to be put together as a three-part series for a reason. And what I'm going to do is give three different approaches to this topic of LGBTQ plus affirmation and inclusion uh, from a Christian and biblical perspective. Um, Because the thing is, I don't think there's one airtight, slam dunk argument that's gonna convince everybody's uncle, right? If that were true, there would be no non-affirming churches and we know that there are. So the reality is that there's not one argument that has ever been made that has convinced anybody. But what I have seen happen, and it happened to me, was that, imagine you're looking at a a tall mountain, and you can see several trails that seem to be going to the peak of the mountain, but you can't see any of them get to the actual peak. But the fact that there's so many trails going up in that direction tells you, hmm, there must be something up there worth visiting. That, I think, maybe starts to get us close to what can happen when we begin to explore this topic a little bit uh, differently than it typically has been in churches. But if you're longing to hear something in this series that's going to be guaranteed to win over a skeptical friend or relative, I think you're going to be disappointed and it's probably not in your or their best interest to send them these sermons and say, hey, just listen to these, it will, you'll understand. That can happen in relationship with people, I'll leave you to, to your judgment. I think a person kind of has to be ready to hear it before they're going to be convinced of anything. So, here's how the three weeks will be different. Today... Um, I'm titling in the sermon Verse by Verse. We are going to go through, super fast, the six, and actually I've extended it to eight verses that are most commonly used to exclude queer people from church. Right? Um, next week, rather than kind of going down microscopically into each little verse, I'm going to talk more broadly about the moral logic of scripture. which is to say the first principles that we can find when we look at the scriptures more broadly. And I'm going to encourage us to apply that moral logic of the text of the Bible in a consistent way. Spoiler alert, part of the moral logic of the Bible we reject when it comes to the role of women in the church. And we still apply that same moral logic to this specific topic of LGBTQ plus inclusion and affirmation. That's kind of what next week will be about. And then the third week, well, I've already changed my mind twice about how the third week is going to go. So this, consider this a little informal poll. You can tell me what you want afterwards. As of right now, it's called Focus on the Positives. Not toxic positivity, but the fact is we talk so much in the church about the negative verses, and I actually think it's not just enough to refute those negative verses. We have to go to the positive case and say there's lots of stuff in the scripture that I think points us toward queer affirmation and inclusion. Right? And we need to embrace those and engage those and maybe say them a little louder than the, than the other verses that, that's, that have gotten their chance to get yelled in a church. <laughs> Version 1 is focus on the positives. Version 2 is a little, like, a little bit more of a punch. It's like a post-evangelical reading of the Bible in general. Like, you have permission to read the Bible in a totally different way. And you don't have to apply it you don't have to apply it the way that you've always been told to apply it, leaving aside the specific applications of specific verses. Am I making sense with this one? Those are my two options. I only have three weeks and I don't know what to do. So tell me what you want. It's possible I could spin that second idea into its whole series, but it might be eight or ten years before I get to it. So, all right. Whew. Again, none of these sermons is supposed to stand on their own. When I teach the Bible, it is my passion not to convince you of interpretations but to inspire you to think more broadly and possibly even go deeper into the text of the Bible yourself. Okay, are you ready for verse by verse? I'm not sure I am, but I will do my best. All right, have you heard the phrase the clobber verses before? The clobber verses is a term that's used to describe these six texts. There's really only six of them probably, depending on how you stretch things, you might find a seventh one, that seem to speak specifically about homosexuality, right? um, and I will note that the T part of LGBTQ is missing, for the most part, from those six verses, um, the way they're typically applied. Next week you'll find out that there's more connection than maybe we would think. So I've added a couple of verses, one of which at least will touch on the um, idea of trans affirmation and inclusion in the church. So, the first one is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, Genesis 19, God sends two angels disguised as men to the city of Sodom, uh, where the men of Sodom threaten to rape them. And then God destroys the city with fire and brimstone. The conclusion that is often made is that those men wanted to have gay sex and so they were destroyed in fire and brimstone. Um, But there's several problems with that application not the least of which is that there's a story elsewhere in the Bible that has the same gruesome uh, structure and idea where it's not men, it's a woman who is at the receiving end of that uh, violence and murder. Um, the second thing that I would say about that is that even if it were true that the, the sin of those men in that story was that they wanted to uh, have sex with other men Why would that then condemn the entire city of Sodom? Is the entire city of that same disposition? That's never stated in the text. That would be an argument from silence. But probably the strongest argument against this is that elsewhere in the Bible, the sin of Sodom is identified as something different. Ezekiel 16 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So, uh, trying to just go really quickly through this, um, the people of Sodom were closed off to visitors and hospitality. They did not want to um, welcome the stranger in, uh, and they did quite the opposite of that. They wanted to, like, commit violence against the stranger. Um, <clears throat> truthfully, the Sodom part of the argument has mostly been abandoned even by traditionalists who want to make a serious biblical argument against LGBTQ plus affirmation in the church. They've kind of realized that one doesn't have any traction. It's not really an intellectually honest argument to make. Okay. Uh, so let's move on to the book of Leviticus, everybody's favorite book in the Bible, <laughs> the book of Leviticus, in which we have chapter 18, um, which says that... Uh, when a man lies with another man as we, lying with a woman, it's an abomination. And chapter 20, which identifies the punishment for that as death. Um, there's so much that could be said about this, but let's go with this. Um, how many other things are identified in the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the, in the law of Moses, as an abomination? <laughs> Shellfish, yes. Um, I was gonna make a pun, I was gonna make a shellfish pun, but I think that would really be um, centering myself. I don't think I should do that. Charging interest on loans is an abomination. (laughs) How many of y'all are gonna start paying your student loans in a few months? (laughs) Burning incense, not just shellfish, but other dietary laws. And some of those abominations also are described as warranting the death penalty, right? The thing with the law of Moses is that it's very uh, complex. There's, uh, by most counts, 613 different laws in the law of Moses, and we have to decide which ones we're going to follow and which ones we're not. Or rather, we don't decide. We just don't follow some of them, and we do follow other ones, right? How many of you are wearing a a garment with more than one type of fabric in it? How many of you have a garden with more than one crop planted in it? The argument from the traditionalist camp is usually that, well, we can divide the law of Moses into moral law and cultural law. And we have to follow the moral laws, but we do not have to follow the cultural laws. Again, that is an argument from silence. There is no such distinction made in the text. And uh, even taking like the most obvious grouping and saying, OK, all the ones about sex we have to follow. The other ones we don't. Well, there are laws about heterosexuality in the law of Moses as well many of which we don't all follow. And furthermore, we would never, ever think to ask the people in our church if they are engaging in heterosexual sex while the woman has her period. Why? Because that's incredibly invasive, and it's none of your damn business. (laughs) Not (laughs) (laughs) PG-13. All right. So... What, how are, whatever you're going to do with the law of Moses, you have to give me a much better framework for deciding which to follow and which to ignore than cultural moral. It doesn't work. You've got to do better than that. And I haven't heard a better version of it. It might be out there, but I haven't heard it yet. All right. Well, you say, Pastor, that's the Old Testament. We don't have to follow the Old Testament. And I'd say, well, actually, I think we kind of do, but let's move on to the New Testament all the same. Uh, Romans chapter 1 has this phrase, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And if you think that's a little more graphic than you thought it was before you heard it, you're right. Um, When we interpret this verse, and the one that's kind of right next to it that sort of says something similar, it's really, as you know, never enough just to look at one verse. You have to look at what comes before, what comes after. And as you zoom out a little farther away from the page, you have to, th- you have to find out for yourself, what is the broad argument of this entire book of the Bible? right? And uh, the book of Romans is not about sex or sexuality. The book of Romans is about how we are justified, saved, by grace, through faith not through works, not through the things that we do, but by our trust in Jesus' work on the cross. Right. And so all of the stuff that occurs in this book it needs to be pointing us to that in some way or another. And the way that Romans chapter 1 points us to that, I think, and it's not just this one little verse about how the men and the women gave themselves up to, you know, to lustful same-sex desires, But rather the whole thing in chapter 1 of all the stuff, all the things that they were doing. There's a lot of they, them pronouns in Romans chapter 1, by the way. All the stuff that they are doing wrong. They did this. They did that. They received in themselves the punishment for their error. And then you get to Romans chapter 2 and you realize that the trap has been sprung. Because the first verse of chapter two says this: Therefore, you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So, literally, all those people who are shouting Romans one at LGBTQ plus people, you know, just imagine them quoting it. We'll just say Romans one, Romans one, Romans one. You just say, Hey, Romans two. When you judge others, you condemn yourself. Give me your megaphone. (laughs) Right, the other thing that's happening in the Book of Romans, and and really, uh, I don't have time to go too deeply into this, this, but I think it's actually a big part of the picture, is that so much of the sexuality as it's described in the uh, Greco-Roman era, which is where Christianity is born, is related to temple practices, you know what we would call perhaps paganism or idolatry. Right? So much of the sex acts that are being decried by the apostle Paul specifically are intimately, if you'll pardon the phrase, connected to idolatrous temple worship. And so you, you can never really separate that out from it either, even, even later in acts 15, this is in my notes, I'm going to try to go really quick because I'm off the book now, but you know, a lot of of you have heard me say Acts 15, I think it's 9 or 19, I can never remember, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. That's what the church decided about the Gentiles, who were not supposed to be part of the family of God, but the Holy Spirit said otherwise. They have this whole thing about how Jewish do we have to make a Gentile before they can be a Christian? And what the church decides is we don't need to make it any more difficult than it already is. We're just going to write to them and tell them to abstain from a few things, right? And it's like blood and food sacrifice to idols and then sexual immorality, which is a chameleon word. But all of those things, food and blood and and certain types of sex, were connected to the pagan worship in the Roman era. And so in order to be a Christian, you don't have to become fully Jewish. You're not under the entire law of Moses. That's the whole point of the book of Romans. But you do have to kind of like turn away from that temple practice of this very, very explicitly not Christian religious viewpoint and practice. Does that make sense? All right. So you, you, we don't see it because we're not living in the era, right? But there's always that that kind of echo of idolatry in the background, with these, especially with these New Testament passages. Okay. Um, there's two... Passages later in the New Testament, two other epistles uh, attributed to the Apostle Paul that take a different approach in their um, negativity toward queer folks. Um, That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. They they use these two words in Greek. And I I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about Greek. Um, But you kind of have to a little bit here. Um, Because the vocabulary is crucial. Now, some Bibles say um, that, quote, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. First of all, we know that we don't use the word homosexual as a noun anymore. uh, But that's what some translations have said. That's a very, very new addition to the English translations of the Bible. Like 1946 was the first time that appeared in any English Bible. Um, Other translations, like I think the uh, King James says, abusers of themselves with mankind, which uh, seems like a very long-winded insult to me, but um, that's that's (laughs) Elizabethan English for you. Um, What the uh, New Revised Standard Version says, uh, I think, is something about sexual immorality um, or male prostitutes. Right. You can see that the NRSV translators are trying to get us away from the common interpretation, which I'm grateful for. But the two words in Greek are, um, I think it's arsenikoitai, which is a compound word between man and bed. Right? And it's actually a word that the Apostle Paul coined for the first time. He was the first one to use it. He made this word up. Um, probably was taking some words from the Greek translation of the book of Leviticus and mashed them together to make up this new compound word, a neologism, if you will, that means something, man better. And the other word is malakoi, which is the word that means soft or effeminate. And because of the uh, gender bias that's sort of baked into the ancient Near Eastern culture, soft, effeminate, is a synonym for weak. Um, So here we're kind of, I'm I'm just sort of just giving you a hint of what's gonna happen next week when we talk about the underlying moral logic of some of these texts and how we can decide that we should either accept it wholeheartedly or reject it wholeheartedly across the board. But what seems to be happening here, um, are you ready for the PG-13 part? What seems to be happening here is that uh, there's a problem with a man being penetrated sexually the way a woman should be. And the problem is that that's not strong, that's not masculine, that would be effeminate or weak and therefore degraded and lower and less important and of less value. Now we have to deal with the fact that that assumption seems to be like coming off the pages of the Bible like mist off the lake first thing in the morning. And we have to deal with what that means for us. Um, But what I don't think we should necessarily do is take that um, as a reason to say that um, same-sex relationship is necessarily sinful. My take on these two passages is that they are probably um, describing this imbalance of power that's present in pederasty, Um, or in the the hierarchical structures of the Roman Empire. In other words, a a male of higher station could bed a male of lower station, no problem. He's not the one who's sinning in that situation. It's the the male who's allowing himself to take the role of a female. Um, So what I think Paul is probably condemning there is actually sexual exploitation of people in power of those who are in less power, and specifically older men and younger men or even boys. All right. Okay, so those are the six clobber verses that are traditionally used to argue that homosexuality specifically is sinful. Um, I have not even tried to claim that that is a full, uh, complete, robust, correction of all those texts. What I'm trying to do is give you like breadcrumbs, something to begin to think more uh, carefully about. But I want to quickly add two additional passages that, because I'm hearing these two passages more and more often. Ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, it was really just these six passages. Um, As the uh, kind of evangelical Bible based inclusive community has developed some pretty good arguments against the traditional interpretation of those passages, the traditionalists who want to cling to their uh, broader interpretation of non-affirmation have gone a little deeper into the text and found some other things. And so I want to address those briefly. Um, By the way, I'm going to forget to say it at the end, so just let me say it now while I'm already on a little bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, On our website, on the page for this particular sermon, there's a link to an article by the Reformation Project, which is a, a queer affirmation. Uh, organization that does incredibly good work there this article i think is probably the most concise version of an argument for affirmation that i've seen recently it's, it's kind of the the best current thing that i'm aware of so if you want to go a little deeper with these um, arguments you can find that linked on our website or if you just look for the reformation project and go to the brief case for biblical inclusion something like that All right, so these two extra passages. The first one is a teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19, because, I mean, we might not like the Apostle Paul, but we have to listen to what Jesus says, right? Now, what Jesus says in Matthew 19 is echoing Genesis chapter 1, which is the first creation story, um, which is often used to argue um, for different gendered marriage as the divine mandate for what marriage is, right? Does that make sense? So Jesus gives this teaching that says, just as it was in the beginning, it says it back in our ancient text, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is between one man and one woman, period, the argument goes. Um, the, there's a problem with that. Jesus is not teaching about same-sex relationships in that passage. Jesus is teaching about divorce in that passage. Jesus was asked a question about divorce by people who wanted to leverage the law of Moses, which allowed for it, into divorcing their wives. And yes, it was always in that direction, because the wife had no power. And Jesus said, "Um, maybe you should consider the underlying moral logic of that law about divorce. Why would you, Moses said you could do it because you had hard hearts. But if you were truly loving, I'm paraphrasing and sort of extemporizing what Jesus is saying here, like you would, you would keep that marriage together because of the whole point of marriage was to put um, the two of you together, and make you one flesh. Right? So I would humbly suggest, you know me, always humble, never sarcastic, yeah. <laughs> that the people who are using Matthew 19, can you see me? I see you. You're watching online. You didn't even come in the room today. The people who use Matthew 19... I'm not really being a jerk. Only a little bit. The people who use Matthew 19 and Jesus' teachings about marriage to prohibit same-sex marriage, I sure hope that they are also prohibiting divorce in their churches. I sure hope that they would not be applying this kind of secondary meaning to the text without applying the very obvious clearly stated primary meaning of that text. So if you're using that text to argue against same-sex marriage and and you're saying nothing about divorce in your church, by the way, this is not an argument to be stricter about divorce in church. I said that to one of my non-affirming friends and he's like, yes, I think we should be condemning people who divorce. Listen, it's, serious, it's a serious matter. We have to handle that question of divorce with care. Right? I don't think that this is not a sermon about divorce. That's the whole point. It's not a sermon about divorce. All right. Um, the second additional passage that I want to get to is going right back to that same creation story. right? Because very often, the story of creation um, is used... Uh, against trans people to say, look at the story of creation. God created the night and God created the day and God created the sea and God created the land and God created the fish and God created the creepy crawlies and God created men and God created women. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Genesis one twenty seven, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. But if you're using that verse to argue that uh, gender is obviously binary, that, that people's gender identity cannot differ from their sex assigned at birth, I would invite you to explore that passage a little more carefully, because just as there is night and day, there is dusk and dawn. Just as there is land and sea, there is swamp. Just as there is fish and creepy crawly there is amphibian by the way do you know what the whale's closest relative is on the animal tree My is, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not nice the hippopotamus the hippopotamus and the whale are the closest evolutionarily biologically they are they share the most with each other right and a hippo is a water dwelling mammal mammal that you know, can, can walk. <laughs> a whale is a water-dwelling mammal that just swims. All right? So do you see that baked into this same creation story, all of the stuff that says in the Bible that God made this and God made that, it's poetry, people. It's, it's parallelism and juxtaposition. God did A and God did B and God did Y and God did Z. And God made all of you cisgender transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming, the way God made you. And the beauty in that gradient is present in your soul, just as the beauty of creation is present in a sunset. And don't ever let anybody take that away from you. So Genesis 1, we're, we're we're not gonna entertain that argument. The last thing I would say is kind of a meta observation, which is uh, that the distinct, we, have to, we have to see a distinction. Does the Bible contain, condemn some same-sex behavior? Yes, I think that's clear that the Bible condemns at least some same-sex behavior. But I do not believe that the, the authors of the Bible had in view our contemporary understanding of LGBTQ plus people, uh, identity, and um, committed, faithful, loving relationships. I just don't see it in those texts of the Bible. Um, Much as we need to think about our modern world and decide whether it would be more Christ-like to drive a a Ford F-150 or a Toyota Prius, Right? I I I wasn't looking for a laughter on that, but but I'm okay with it. Listen, if you want to care for our creation, we ought to be considering things like our carbon footprint. As Christian people, that's something we ought to do. But you can't find a verse in the Bible that talks about a Prius. It's just not there. By the way, my friend with a Prius has a bumper sticker that says, Cool Prius. Said no one ever. (laughs) Um, Do you get what I'm saying? We have to think critically and carefully and gently and humbly about how to apply teachings from an ancient text to a modern context. And I think that the church has gotten this wrong. I just simply think the church has gotten it mostly wrong. And I don't say that lightly. One of our foundational values as a church is roots. I am committed not just to the way the Bible says things, but the way the church has taught. The tradition of the church matters to me and to us. So we, we have to be very careful when we decide to di, you know, divert from it. But we've decided that, and I think we've made a good case for it. Um, this is just scratching the surface of it, um, verse by verse. Thus concludes verse by verse. Next week, we'll be back to talk about first principles and underlying moral logic and and patriarchy. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) Oh, God be with us. God be with you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.